0: Uh, weekend, yes, sir. Man, no. no, no, I, I got that. Good. Thanks for clarifying that, <laughs> Bill. Congratulations to the Brizardines. <laughs> Raydin, you're used to you, you're used to this, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. God bless you both. Just a blessing for us to have you here and see uh, how you've sustained uh, your commitment to the vows by God's grace over all these years. Quite a wonderful. You've raised a bar for us and we, we are grateful to you. And we're also grateful to be able to gather together all across the land, people of different faith perspectives, worshiping freely, and that is one of the freedoms that's been obtained for us at great cost. And this is what we pause to acknowledge during Memorial Day weekend, as you know. used to be called Decoration Day. It was a time when folks would go out and decorate the graves of loved ones who've paid the ultimate price to obtain our freedoms. They decorate the graves with flowers. It started after the Civil War, perhaps you might know. A terrible wound left in our country, and uh, those on both sides had in common grieving over the loss of their loved ones and So those who fought for the Union, the Confederacy, uh, decided at that time, let's let's pay respect to those who've uh, paid the ultimate price. That's how it began, different than Veterans Day. On Veterans Day, we say thank you to veterans uh, who have served or are now serving. But on Memorial Day, we pause to remember those who are no longer with us. They've paid the ultimate price. So tomorrow is officially Memorial Day. It's a day off for many. And people will get together and enjoy each other's company. Families will barbecue and all the rest and have a good time. I personally do not object to that. I think it's very legitimate. As long as when we do, we remember that those good times are our experience because of the uh, terribly bad times so many have gone through in order to uh, allow us to have those freedoms. It's not just to secure those freedoms. It's to sustain those freedoms that those who serve in the military do so, so honorably, and uh, we're grateful. Uh, in Israel, uh, recently we were there, and they had their Memorial Day. Sirens go off. People pause from what they're doing at the time. If they're in vehicles, they'll pull off to the side of the road. They'll exit their cars. They'll just stand at attention. It's a moment of uh, silence. They'll pay respects to those who've paid the price to secure their freedoms, and then the very next day, they'll celebrate Independence Day. They juxtapose the two events so as to show uh, what we're enjoying on Independence Day uh, is came subsequent to the pain and loss we've experienced, as is uh, acknowledged on Memorial Day. And uh, uh, we would be remiss if we were any less um, willing to pay respect to the memories of those who've paid the price for us than they do in Israel. And thank God at Sagemont Church and, and and largely in in our circles, we have utmost respect for those who have worn the uniform and paid that price. So I want to ask you to do something which crosses political lines. It has nothing to do with politics. It's just a sign of respect. Could I ask you once again to stand to your feet for a moment of silence? And while you do that, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just have a conversation with the Lord Jesus, and you might see fit to thank him for letting you be here in America. I know we're a troubled country. Where, where, where are there no troubles? I understand all that, but still, uh, we're able to do things that many and many other places are, are not able to do. And these freedoms have been, uh, paid for with blood. And, uh, we still think serving in the military is an honorable thing. And so if you're grateful to God for the sacrifice made on your behalf by so many others. Could you express that to him now privately? And also, you might pray for those who even now are grieving the loss of loved ones who've perished in one of our many military conflicts. Take a moment or two, and then I'll close us. Lord Jesus, this is a very loud period of silence. You're hearing our hearts. They're crying out to you with thanksgiving. On the one hand, we're sorry the military is necessary. It's not the way you designed things since Genesis. On the other hand, because of sin and conflict and all the rest, we're grateful for our military to protect us and secure our freedoms and all the rest we look forward to the day when it won't be necessary but it's very necessary now indispensable we see our military to be a wonderful and honorable uh activity and we're so grateful for those who participated who now participate and those who participated even at a cost to their own lives we do not take it lightly lord jesus we enjoy our freedoms We stand on the shoulders of those who've secured them with great, great sacrifice. We pray for their families, loved ones, moms, dads, grandparents, spouses, children, who are without these loved ones now. And we pray that you would give them special grace and comfort, comfort in knowing that their loved ones died doing a very honorable thing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for allowing us to be in this place at this time through the sacrifice of so many others. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. God bless you. <clears throat> um, so we're in Genesis chapter 15 today, uh, verse 7. And uh, excuse me one second. Emmanuel, before you go, I'm not going to give you anything, but I want to show you something from Germany. <laughs> and is my friend. Uh, some people went to Germany and brought this back. I thought you'd get a kick out of it. Mein Freund. Um, so we're in Genesis 15. I just did that to give you a chance to find it. <laughs> Genesis 15, verse 7. We'll finish the entire chapter today. So holy moly, buckle up. I'm out of breath already. Uh, verse 7, here we go. Look, and he said to him, who's the him? Abraham, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Where is, in what modern day country was Ur of the Chaldeans located? Iraq. I just met a new friend whose husband is from Iraq. This is where your husband is from. Abram came from Iraq, Ur of the Chaldeans. And God said, I did this to give you this land. What land is God speaking of? Canaan, land of Canaan. What modern-day country is that? Okay. Uh, To give you this land to possess it. Okay, so now i got to pause a little bit and talk to you about the land, the land of Israel. Now, um, some of you may be disturbed that I'm doing this again. Uh, And you may say, well, he's a Jewish guy, so he's always talking about Israel. Hang on just a second. Uh, I have a confession to make. When I was just Jewish... And did not yet know the Jewish Messiah. I had no interest in the land called Israel. You may find that to be remarkable, but that is actually typical of most uh, modern-day American Jews. I was born in the states. I've never been to Israel. I know. I do not. I hardly speak a bit of Hebrew. I don't know much about camels. What, what in the world? You're talking about Israel. I'm from New York. I know about hubcaps. We steal hubcaps. You want to talk hubcaps? Cool. Camels? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I served in the military in this country, not in Israel, and, and all the rest. But it was when I came to know Jesus that I got the mind of Christ, and then I became quite interested in what's happening in Israel. So the land uh, and its importance became important to me, not because I'm a Jew. So I, I don't want to give you permission to dismiss what I'm saying just because I'm Jewish. I'm saying what I'm saying uh, because God is speaking about the topic. I don't know if you know this, but I didn't write Genesis 15. I just want to clarify this. I'm just reading it. And if Israel comes up all the time and, and you're bothered by that, maybe you should take your offense to God because I didn't write this. I'm just reading it. Now, why does Israel come up again and again and again? Why is that? really narrow parcel of land so important it's about 150 miles from north to south it's not very wide what in the world is so important about israel well it's this god chose that parcel of land why i do not know you could ask him one day i intend to i would have thought like switzerland would be much cooler (laughs) or colorado or something like that pasadena not so much he chose Israel, on the other hand. Uh, why? Again, we'll have to ask him one day. But what did he choose Israel for? Why that piece of real estate? It was like a stage on which God chose to uh, act out the drama of redemption. It's a stage on which he chose to act out the drama of redemption. What do I mean? The Redeemer was born there. That's the Parcel of land in which Jesus was born. He was not born in Mecca. He was not born in Rome. He was not born in Washington, D.C. He was born in Israel. God did this. But he wasn't only born there. That's where he lived. That's where he grew. That's where he developed. That's where he spoke. That's where he performed miracles, which are inexplicable, except that he's a miracle worker. That's not only where he did all those things. That's where he was murdered. That's the place of this homicide called the crucifixion. It was a murder. That's what it was. On trumped up charges in violation of every law of Jewish jurisprudence, he was executed, for crying out loud. That's where he was executed. But that doesn't tell the whole story. That's the place where there was something called an a tomb that was left empty. I don't know where exactly it is. Some people claim to. I don't know. I just know somewhere there. But I do know this. The reality of an empty tomb was left post-crucifixion there in that land called Israel. And by the way, if all we have is the cross, we don't have good news. I don't know if you knew that. If all we have is the cross, we have a failed Savior, Good news, we have more than the cross. We have the cross coupled with the empty tomb. That means we have a Savior who died, and we have a Savior who lives after he died. Don't you love these two beautiful symbols on our campus? They're not just there for aesthetic value, the empty tomb and the cross. You walk between those two things. You are sandwiched in between the two, the cross on which Jesus died, the tomb indicating that he won victory over death, and you follow suit if you belong to him. So that's the piece of real estate in which there was the empty tomb. But not only that, that's the place where there were the post resurrection appearances. What does that mean? It means the Lord gave evidence of the fact that he was alive from the dead. You know how he gave evidence of the fact that he was dead? He was buried. As a general rule, we wait for people to die before we bury them. That's usually the proper sequence the Lord really died folks it wasn't an apparition it wasn't an image Islam teaches it was a bit of an apparition I don't know if you knew this the Quran teaches Jesus died but not essentially not really It was sort of a spirit no a tomb and a burial in which was a corporeal physical body tells us he died and the post-resurrection appearances tells us he lives now psychologists say you know here's the deal uh these deals, the claims that Jesus was alive after death, people saw him. That's a phenomenon. It's a psychological phenomenon. Just like when you're really thirsty and dry, you're in a desert. You think you see water up ahead, and you you go, but it's just sand. It's a mirage. You can delude yourself. You can, yeah, but, but what happened with the post-resurrection appearances is absolutely contrary to psychological phenomenon because he revealed himself not to one person in one place, but to diverse groups of people in manifold places. You don't get delusionals that way. Not only that, you usually have the delusion of seeing someone alive from the dead when you're expecting it and wanting it. The Lord's followers didn't believe he's coming back. Are you kidding me? They scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They went undercover for crying out loud. The resurrection was a major surprise to them, even though they had heard about it beforehand. So that's the piece of real estate in which he revealed himself alive after death. That's not all. That's the piece of real estate in which he went up or ascended back to his father. He was born there, died there, Left from there, but he left in a different way than when he came. We sent him back to the father, bruised, beaten, and with holes in him. Thank God that he hasn't wiped us all out. That's how we, that's how he treated his son. So we sent him there from, from what's, the Mount of Olives. I didn't make that up. I don't know what spot on the Mount of Olives, but I know that's the spot. And I know the Mount of Olives is not in Trenton, New Jersey. It's in this piece of real estate we're talking about here, the land of Israel. That's where he ascended from. But I also know that's the very place to which he's returning. He is not coming back to Rome. He's not coming back to Mecca. I'm choosing these as headquarters of world religions. He's not coming back to, you know, Salt Lake. Oh, that's good. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, you just name it. Yeah, I, Dan, Dan said, yeah, I just want to, Dan, D-A-N, I'll give you his email later. Anyway, he's never, he chose that place. That's where he's coming back to, you know, and, and how's he coming back? I mean, the same way in which he left. People who were there, angels, said, you see the way he goes? He's coming back the same way. How did he go? He went physically, visibly, um, truthfully, he, that's how he's coming back, visibly, physically, bodily. It's going to be no apparition, no ghost, no nothing. Jesus, what's he going to do when he comes back? Well, my, he's going to receive worship. In what? A temple. But where's it going to stand? In that land. The temple's going to be there. He's going to be in the, And you know who's going to be with him there? You is, if you're a Christian, for crying out loud. You're going to be, but not just you. People from all over the world are going to come to worship the king there. All that stuff is happening. For a thousand years, he's going to rule. You know, that's the time we were talking about the military. That's the period of time when, what does it say? The lion is going to lie down. Are those the animals with the lamb? In, in other words, animals don't get along. are going to get along. They're going to be... The hostilities in the natural order are going to be reversed during the rule and reign of Messiah Jesus. Where is it all going to take place? Look no further. It's all going to take place in that narrow parcel of land that's why it's called the holy land it's not called the holy land because the people in it are holy it's not called the holy land because the land has something intrinsically different than any other dirt it's called holy because it's been separated for the enactment of the drama of redemption for crying out loud now you may not know that and i may not know that fully but satan does That's why he wants the stinking land. That's the reason for the Middle East conflict. It has nothing to do with oil and Islam and Arabs and Jews and all this kind of stuff. No, it has to do with Satan versus Savior. The sin of Satan is that he's jealous of what? The Savior is due. The Savior is due worship. Satan wants it. Therefore, if he can mess up the plan, the drama of redemption by laying hold of the land, causing conflict, driving Jews into the sea, whatever he's up to, then he can keep Jesus from ruling, he thinks, ruling and reigning on the throne. So listen. Rothberg dogmatic statement number 9042 just today. I don't see how you can be a truly born-again believer and not be supportive of Israel in the land. I didn't say supportive of the Israeli government. Did you hear what I said? I didn't say that. I said supportive of Israel's right to the land. I don't see that. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I doubt it. See, if you smooth, you just slide it in. People just go, okay, I guess that's right. Alright, so, so we're talking about, listen, this land that I'm making a big deal over, I'm making a big deal over because God makes a big deal over it. By the way, God already promised this land to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 12 verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I'll give this land. Then he repeated that promise, Genesis 13, verse 15, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And then he repeated it again, Genesis 13, verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And you will see God reaffirm that promise manifold other times in Genesis. Here, he's doing it again in Genesis 15. God is reaffirming his commitment, his promise to give that piece of real estate to Abram in a particular people group who emanate from him through Isaac, through Jacob, they're called the Jews. Now, I did not say you ought to give Jews a pat on the back, bow down before them, show them favor above any other people group. I didn't say that at all. I'm just saying you, you better believe the words of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I gave it, and if he gave it, the people who got it, should be in the land. All I'm saying is, take God at his at His word. Here's his word. So, Israel has had a problem. It's been a people without a nation, uh, excuse me, a nation without a land. That's inconceivable. How do you have a nation without a land and it not go uh, out of existence? Israel was in the land until A.D. 70. Then something happened. The Tenth Roman Legion, under the leadership of Titus, came into Jerusalem. The Jews were getting uppity essentially. he says, "No can do so uh, they laid siege to Jerusalem over months, and uh close to a million and a half were killed. The temple was destroyed, burned down, and its some of the rocks on the temple platform were thrown down below. And I'm not making this up. If you have been to Israel, you saw the rocks left there for 2,000 years. And what happened is in AD 70, the Romans pushed the Jews out for upwards of 2,000 years. So what happened to the Jews? They were involved in something called the dispersion, or in Greek, the diaspora. They got scattered. To all kinds of places, like even Pearland, Texas, for crying out loud. It's like a Rothberg in Pearland, Texas. Whoever heard of such a thing? Now, I mean, all over the place. Like, for instance, there was a Jew who was the mayor of Dublin, Ireland a few years ago. Isn't that kind of a weird deal? The whole thing makes me sort of like green matzo balls, this guy. I mean, what? we I mean, were like all over the place. We're like cockroaches, for crying out loud. We've just been spread out all over the entire world through the dispersion. He said, but then... Suddenly, we're back in the land. Now, how in the world did that happen? Now, it's such a, an unanticipated, miraculous event. One with the stature of G. Campbell Morgan. Now, you may not have heard of him, but... I'm telling you, he's a giant. He's a deceased. He's with the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan, British Bible Expositor. If you read stuff by G. Campbell Morgan, you're in good. You're safe. If you read a commentary, devotional. G. Campbell Morgan, really cool because you probably can't understand it because he speaks British. You know what I mean? It's like a different language. But anyway, this is like a major, um, noble, virtuous Christian guy. In 1932, even one of the statue of G. Campbell Morgan made this statement. I am now quite convinced, he said, that the teaching of Scripture as a whole is that there is no future for Israel as an earthly people at all. That's what he said, 1932. I understand that because 1932 was prior to 1948. But on May 14, 1948, Israel is reconstituted as a modern nation. You explain that to me. Now, you can say the Jews are cool, the Jews are tough, the Jews are smart, the Jews are good-looking. Well, maybe that one. But that's not the point. You must not say that. None of that is the explanation. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kept his word. That's what you have to get out of all this. It's not lauding the Jews or any of that kind of stuff. We're not into that. Not at all. It's lauding, it's worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your God, who made promises which he kept in spite of the most stiff-necked and rebellious people on earth. I admit that. My people. But it's not about my people. It's about God and the veracity of his word. He kept his word. What's the evidence? Jews back in the land. When I take people to Israel, I take them to Independence Hall in Tel Aviv. Very few tour groups go there. And I can see why. It's a very unimpressive building we go to, Independence Hall. Yeah, it was a guy's house. It even, doesn't even look that good. You go in and we have a presentation. It's not that good. It's okay. You know, they show charts. They ought to use better technology, whatever. But that's not the reason we go. Impressiveness of the building or presentation. I want people to be able to say, I was on the site of a modern-day miracle. May Fourteenth, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, first prime minister of Israel, declared the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel after almost 2,500 years. I'm telling you, this doesn't happen. It doesn't happen unless God says... I keep my word. And if I kept my word to the Jews, I will keep my word to you. I am manifesting my integrity by showing you how I've responded to the Jews. You see how I've responded to, the, to them? This is an indication of my character. You can trust me. I brought Israel back into the land after centuries and centuries. Okay, so uh that's why I say if you're, if you're pro-Israel in the sense that everything the Israeli government does, you defend, then you're way out of line. But if you're pro-Israel in the sense that you, you, you stand by Israel in their right to exist on that piece of real estate, because God gave it to them, then you're on good biblical footing, it seems to me. All right, so here's what happens in verse 8. Abram says, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? See, he's as blown away by this as many others would be. Why is Abram so blown away by God's promise? It's not that he's doubting it. He's just looking for a little something to bolster up his faith. And the reason I know he's not doubting it is that God doesn't rebuke him for the question at all. In fact, you'll see God answers it. But why does Abram even ask it? Show me more. Give me some more to go on, God. Well, look, Abram's living in the land at the time, but there are all kinds of ites in the land. Canaanites, Perizzites, Amorites. Hittites, Hevites. Abram's asking this question. God, thanks for like giving me the land and the people who come from me, but there's like already people in the land. So how's this working out? Us, them, them, us. He just doesn't have any idea, doesn't have a clue. Second, remember, Abraham is still living a nomadic existence at this time. He's living in tents. Modern day Bedouins, Uh, If you've gone to the Middle East, are the equivalent of the lifestyle Abraham lived. Bedouins live in tents, they move from place to place. That's what Abraham, that's how he was. He, He was nomadic. So so the idea of land ownership was an entirely foreign concept. It's not to us as Americans. You know, you buy a house, you buy a piece of real estate. We got all that. Commonplace. But but this didn't exist. Here's a tent because it's near water and, you know, it's a good season for growing whatever. But now I got to move over here because it's the winter. You don't own anything. There's no such thing as private land ownership. God says, well, yeah, there is now. I'm giving you land. I know there's people in the land, but I'm putting you people in that land. And it's going to be your land. And this whole concept give Abraham some credit, he just needs some more data. He needs some more information. So this is what God does, verse 9. He says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, five different living things, two of which are birds. And then he Abraham, he brought all these to him and he cut them in two, a little gruesome. Here's how he cut them. Not horizontally, you know, upper torso, lower. No, no, vertically, top to bottom. So you got the animal, two equal parts, you know, cut in two, blood and the whole thing. I'm, I'm just reading this. And, and he laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. I don't know why he didn't cut the birds. I don't get this. You know, when you read scripture, it's not that you understand everything, Right. That's the beauty of Scripture. It's bigger than us. Well, here's something. I don't, know. I don't know why he didn't cut the birds, except maybe like they were small. One time I was invited, only once, never again, to the pastor's ranch to go hunting like a million years ago. But I know why he doesn't invite me anymore uh, uh, because I, I'll tell you in a second. But anyway, he invites us to the ranch, you know, in the middle of like nowhere. It's the end of the world. It's a horrible place. Don't go there if you're ever invited. I mean, things bite you. They stick you. They do... You know, this is like for a Jewish guy. You want to have a break. It's like a hotel with a big screen TV. You know, you got your three meals a day and it's air conditioned. You're not in the middle of nowhere. And then you're hunting doves. All right, well, so we hunt doves. So I bag a couple of these little things and they land on the ground. You go over to them. You know, you go over, you get the, you you, you hold that little thing right here in the mi- middle of your two fingers. That's lunch? That's that's where I came all the way. I schlepped all the way here to the middle of, Nowhere. This is like not even the United States anymore. It can't be. Where in the world are we? There's no people. There's no electricity. There's no nothing. Look out! Don't move here. Something's gonna get you. Something's gonna. And and you do all that to get this little thing. There's like nothing on it. What are we gonna eat? How, how do? You... So I thought. How do you cut the bird? This is not just like a little chickling. It's like a little. What are you talking? That's not. This is. Re... So maybe that's why. He didn't cut the bird. Anyway, that's why I haven't been invited back. to to the ranch in a long time. Perhaps he perceived uh, that I don't belong there. So anyway, yeah. So I I don't understand. But I do understand this. Have you ever heard the expression to cut a covenant? This is where it came from, to cut a covenant. What was up with that? You, 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 You slice the animal in the middle, you know, two equal parts, and you have two people who are privy to a contract or a covenant, a treaty. That's what it is. It's bilateral. Two people. They, they walk between the pieces. They cut the animals and they walk between the two. And non-verbally, they essentially express this. They say, hey, if I violate the terms of this contract, may this happen to me, what happened to the animals. And the other person says, yeah, me too. Me too. Takes two. It's like signing. Y- you both sign on a dotted line, this kind of deal. But under penalty, they're serious about this. You know, maybe, May I die like these animals did. So that's... It's called a covenant ratification ceremony. It existed in ancient, in the ancient Near East. It wasn't an Israel thing. It was an everybody thing. That's how they did it. This was the equivalent of getting something notarized. You, or you get an attorney. You know, okay, well, you sign here and you sign here, you know, and this kind of thing. You get someone witnessing it. This is not a God thing. You know, God didn't come up with this idea. It was an idea people came up with, but God accommodated himself to the custom of the day. Why? Because that's how he is. Do you know everything God does for us is an accommodation? He's transcendent. He's high and lifted up. Everything he does to extend himself to us means he comes low. Is an, the whole Bible is an accommodation. The language of the Bible. It, God gave it to us in words we can understand. Concepts we can understand. So they had this covenant ratification procedure in existence and God accommodated himself to it. And so, so he tells Abraham to do all this stuff. So verse 11, the birds of prey came down. Like vultures or something like that. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. I don't know entirely what's up there. But some people say they're probably right. This is sort of a symbol of um, intervening distractions, forces, powers, influences that may want to interfere with the covenant. And Abraham, in getting rid of him, is saying, no, no, I'm not going to let anything get in the way. I-, I don't know. I don't really know what's up there. But I know this. Verse 12, the sun was going down. And a deep sleep fell upon Abram. That's the second time we read about someone having a deep sleep. Remember the first time? Adam, he slept. And God brought him Eve. What was that about? It was to show us and Adam, Adam had nothing to do with meeting his needs for a life partner. He did nothing. He was sleeping at the time. God made that happen. And just as Adam had nothing to do with getting Eve Abram has nothing to do with being part of the covenant. You know what he's doing while God's making all this happen? He's sleeping. It's important to keep that in mind for a second. I'll tell you why. Anyway, behold, a uh, terror, great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. What land is that? That is Egypt. Now we got a little problem in the Bible. Uh, cause it says, Abram, your people are going to Egypt. You're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But I read to you Exodus chapter 12 verse 40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. So, anyone have an idea of how to resolve that discrepancy? Genesis says 400. This is, what do you say, Rex? Man, Rex is on target. Rex said the first 30 years, they weren't slaves. Remember, Joseph was down there. He had favor with Pharaoh. That's it. Way to go, Rex. I'm glad you were here. Most of the time, I'm not so thrilled. But today, <laughs> not only that, can't you round off? I'm just saying, let's say you buy something. And I, and I, and I like what you bought. I say, hey, how, what, how much that cost you? You say, oh, about 200 bucks. But I happen to see the receipt. I say, you lied. It's $197.36. You round it off. Why can't you, if you can round off, why can't God? I'm telling you, there are sometimes numbers in the Bibles are rounded off on purpose. It's it's just acceptable. So anyway, you got two exponents. Here's the deal. If someone wants to find something wrong with the Bible, they will succeed. But in my experience, when people want to find something wrong with the Bible, it's because they know the Bible finds a lot wrong with them. You see what I mean? So if I can dismiss the Bible, then I can take the heat off me. So, okay, Uh, God says, your people are going down to Egypt for all this time. Uh, But then he says in verse 14, but hang in there, Abram, I'm going to judge the nation whom they will serve. And not only that, they're going to come out with lots of stuff, many possessions. Abram, they're going to go down. as slaves come out like a victorious army. It happened. Exodus 12, 35 and 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So what's God up to? Abram, I made you promise of land. But there's going to be some intervening events, like for a long time, 400 plus years. Do not doubt my word, Abram, during that time. You may be prone to, but don't do it. I'm telling you, I'm totally in control. Your people are going down to a country that is not theirs. They will be subjugated and enslaved there. I got it. Take it easy, Abram. Calm down. I'm going to deal with those who enslaved them. And not only that, when they leave, they're going to be in far better shape than when they got there. So just hang in there is what essentially God is saying. And as for you, Abram, Verse 15, now God's addressing his personal situation. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Now, you don't have to buy this, but uh, let me ask you this. Where were Abram's fathers buried? Or of the Chaldees, that's where he came from, Iraq. Where was Abram buried? Israel, land of Canaan. So this cannot mean, when God says you're going to your fathers, that your body is physically being taken back to Iraq. It doesn't mean that. Therefore, it must mean something non-physical, maybe spiritual. Folks, in embryonic form, we're beginning to see the notion of eternal life. Abram, don't worry about you. When you pass, you will be gathered to your fathers, that is to say, to those who, like you, have put their faith in me. Now, this is not a full-blown theology of eternal life because that's not how it works. You start in Genesis, and God's truth progresses. It's called progressive revelation. So by the time you get to the New Testament, we have a full-blown idea of what eternal life is. But if people say eternity didn't even exist in the Old Testament, no, they don't know what they're talking about. What do you think it means when it says he was gathered to his fathers? All right, so here's what happens, Verse 16. In the fourth generation, they'll return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So here's the deal. God says, Abram, I made you a promise, but not all of my promises are immediate. You have to wait. I require you to trust me for the fulfillment thereof. There's a reason why you and your people are not coming into immediate possession of the land. And here it is, verse 16. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So, who are the Amorites? Those are people living in the land of Canaan, the land God promised to Abram and his descendants. The Amorites are a subgroup of Canaanites, but when you see the term Amorite, sometimes it's used in a non-specific sense, a broader sense of many of the residents in the land. I think that's the context. Here, the point is there was there were people in the land Amorites Canaanites, and they had uh, uh, fallen into grotesque debauchery, unstinking believable stuff. It's not like they just missed choir practice. We're talking about major insane sexual perversion and other things like uh, burning up their children on the. Um, heated up, extended iron hands of Molech and other false gods. By the way, in Israel, we saw a Canaanite altar place at Megiddo. Remember that circular deal? That's where they pulled off this stuff. In Jerusalem, we were near the valley of um, the Hinnom Valley, from which we get the word Gehenna. That's where other folks offered up these crazy... Anyway, my point is, we're not talking about a couple infractions here. We're talking about unbelievable stuff. But even in spite of the wickedness, God is so patient, he says, I'm going to give them over 400 years to repent. And then, when the fullness of their iniquity, of which they do not repent, comes in, that's when it's judgment time. So that's why God didn't give the land to uh, Abraham's descendants right away. He gave the Amorites, the people in the land, a chance to repent. Well, they did not. So now God brings the Jews out of Israel under the conquest of the land led by Joshua to take control of the land, part of which meant um, conquering the residents of the land, even killing them the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, all the rest. You and I are probably troubled by that because our image of God is that he's a warm and fuzzy kind of flower child, mamby-pamby God. Need a hug? I'll give you a hug. And he does, but please keep in balance the fact that he's intensely holy. And after giving people a chance to repent, if they refuse, then all that's left is judgment. So when Israel is accused today of being occupiers of the land, it's just a crazy accusation. You can't be accused of an uh, illegitimate occupier of real estate that God mandated you move into. God is the one who vacated the residence in the land so as to move Israel in. And the roots of it are right there. Well, it came about when the sun had set, verse 17, it was very dark. And behold, there appeared, get this, two objects appeared. One, a smoking oven. Two, a flaming torch. And these inanimate objects somehow move. They passed between the pieces. Folks, they are objects representing the very presence of God, who is a consuming fire. What's the point? He passed through the pieces. He ratified the land covenant with Abram and his descendants, but notice he and he alone passed through the pieces. It wasn't bilateral. It was unilateral. Abraham was basically sleeping and scared at the time for crying out loud. It was unilateral and also unconditional. God required nothing for Abram to do in order to sustain the promise. God did not ask Abram to make a promise to him. God is the one who made the promise. Why am I developing all this? Folks, it's a covenant of grace, not of works. Purely by grace, God alone passed through the pieces, ratified the covenant, and said to Abram, this I will do in spite of what you will or will not do. Now why am I emphasizing that? If you're a Christian, you too are under a covenant of grace. It's called the New Covenant. And I ask you, what did you do to enter into partnership with God to ratify the covenant? You did Zippo. It's not just a song when we sing just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. It's not just a song. It's good theology for crying out loud. You did nothing to contribute to the covenant of grace under which you are saved. You had nothing to offer for Christ except the same darkness and slumber and comatose lifestyle of sin that Abraham experienced. God passed through the pieces when he offered his son on the cross. You were not literally crucified with Christ. Nails didn't go through your hands. You weren't stripped naked. You weren't impaled on a cross. He was You laid hold of it by faith, and God said, that's enough for me. It ought to be enough for you. And the reason why God didn't make you a participating partner to sustain the covenant of grace known as your salvation is because God knew you wouldn't, and therefore it would end the deal. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 tells us, when God made the promise to Abraham... Well, it's just the pro- it's the very promise we're reading about in Genesis. When God did this, since he could swear, since God could swear, since he could promise by no one greater, he swore by himself. He said, "Abraham, you got nothing to do with it. I can't count on you to do something so as to validate, sustain and perpetuate the covenant. Therefore, since there is no one greater than me, I simply give my word. The land is yours." Now, why is all that important for us? Folks, uh how do you know for sure that God is going to keep his word to you and bring you into your land of promise called heaven? You know what a wretch you are. For crying out loud, any one of us could spend five minutes with you and find out what a renegade you are. You know what you're made of. I know we're all dressed up and looking kind of pretty and all that stuff today. But you know the capacity to sin that's on your heart, you know about this, so do I. You you know about all that. There are times, therefore, when you take a look at yourself and you say, I am really falling short of any legitimate standards. I guess I have forfeited my entry into my promised land, heaven. No, never. Because you didn't pass through the pieces. You didn't have to. The covenant under which you're saved was unilateral and unconditional, just as it was with Abram. So the next time you doubt your salvation, you have to say, the Jews. I got it, the Jews. And you see how God dealt with the Jews as uh, under a covenant of grace, and then it'll bolster up your assurance of your salvation. You'll say, the Jews were so bad. They're so privileged and squandered their privilege, and yet God kept his word uh, with regard to this promise made to Abram. The Jews are back in the land. The next time you think of the Jews back in the land, that's the basis upon which you can be assured of uh, God fulfilling his word to you. If God rejected the Jews, as many are saying today, there's no basis for you to be secure in your salvation. When is he going to reject you? Have you studied the history of the church? The history of the church is as spotted as the history of Israel. Are you kidding me? (laughs) but that's not the basis of our security. So look, when the Bible says God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent as he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? That's numbers 23:19. You see, how do I know that? Well, the answer is the Jews. 6 million of us were put in ovens and perished. Horrible. But please explain to me how 6 million survived. There are 13 million Jews in the land to, in the world today. By the way, a very interesting recent survey of people who are who who have anti-Semitic attitudes, interesting, were surveyed internationally. People who don't like the Jews, and they were asked, "How many Jews are there?" And the average person said 700 million. <laughs> you know what it is? When you don't like a certain people group, you think there there's way too many of them. <laughs> you think they're all? There's only 13 million of us, and of the 13 million, uh, there's um, about six million in, in Israel. The population of Israel is eight million. Two million are Arab citizens of Israel. Six million Jews. Dinky. We're like nothing. There's just nothing to us. But but the fact that we exist is not a testimony to Jewish perseverance, wisdom, and stick to it. Nonsense. You know what Jews are like? Everybody. We're like everybody. We're like you. You're not so hot, neither are we. This is not about the Jews. This is about, oh, my goodness, now I can take God at his word. Jesus said to me, if you accept me, I'll grant you eternal life. I'll take your sins and cast them uh, behind your back. Where I am, you'll be with me. Nothing can separate you from my love. I mean, Jesus says stuff like that. See, well, how do I know this? He says, the Jews, did I not keep my promises to them? So when you have, uh, theologians today in church groups who are opting for something called replacement theology, meaning God replaced the Jews since the Jews have rejected Him. When you opt for replacement theology, they don't no longer have a right to the land because they've rejected their own Messiah. When you do that, then you're saying, you're setting yourself up for God replacing you. (laughs) You don't think He can find better people than you to go to heaven? Sure He could. You're not so hot. You kidding me? We can find, we can go to Walmart today and find a bunch of people better than you. Are you kidding me? Don't you understand what I'm saying? The, so what is the basis of my steadiness and stability and security? Is I live under the Word of God as my assurance. I watch the way historically He has conducted Himself with Israel. They've been at their worst. He's been at His best. He made a promise to them, and He designed it so that it would be unconditional and unilateral. There's no. The for Israel to forfeit an unconditional unilateral covenant. But wait. Does that mean there's no penalty for Israel's sin? Oh. First of all, apart from Christ, the penalty is eternal separation for Jew and Gentile alike. That's the way it is. But even before then, I'll show you the penalty for Israel's sin. Check out verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt. Now many people think that's the Nile river. It may be, but probably not. The river of Egypt is probably something called Wadi El Arish, which is the body of water just east of the Nile river. But anyway, let's say from the Nile river, Uh, the extent of the land from the Nile river. And then it says, as far as the great river. Now here we don't have to, Interpret, because it says right there, doesn't it? River Euphrates. What country is that in? Iraq. So look, Nile River area, southeast Egypt, all the way, excuse me, southwest, all the way northwest to Iraq. That's the extent of the land God said I'm giving. However, not once in Israel's history has she ever, ever enjoyed the full extent of the land God promised her. In fact, let me say something really a little crazy, but give me a shot. Um, I don't think we even would have had to send troops to Iraq at great cost and loss if my people had obeyed God. If my people had obeyed God, they would have been in possession of that territory. (laughs) And we would not have had to send American soldiers to give their lives. (laughs) Consequence of sin. Israel never has experienced full extent of what God promised. And she never has been unchallenged in being in the land, even today. It's just unbelievable what's going on. What does that mean? Israel cannot lose her title deed to the land. But Israel's enjoyment of the land is limited by her sin. You, a Christian, cannot lose your title deed to heaven. But your enjoyment of salvation is limited by sin. Which is why the prayer in the Bible is not, restore to me my salvation. No, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Why? Because you can't lose it. Because it's unilateral and unconditional. You didn't pass through the pieces. Jesus did. He was crucified you stood by with empty hands and said, I accept. Don't you see what's going on? Don't you see? So, folks, unconditional unilateral covenant gave Israel the land, covenant of grace. Unconditional unilateral covenant gives us the covenant by which we're saved. However, Israel and Is- uh, Abram and Abram's descendants, the Jews, do not fully enjoy what God has for them because of their sin. And Christians may not fully enjoy what God has for them because of their sin. Sin does not mean forfeiture of salvation. Sin means minimization of all that God wants us to inherit as saved people. Big, big difference. So as he is with the Jews, so he is with the church of Jesus Christ. So you got to be consistent. If you say he dumped the Jews they no longer have a right to the land, as an increasing number of fairly prominent people are saying, then you have to say, I'm in line to be dumped as well. That's not the way it works. Okay, boy, I'm hot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, go ahead, brother. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. That is exactly right. That's a great, great analogy. Yes, Mary. Yes. Was it say, Mary? That's okay. Take your time. Ah. Uh-huh. Yes. So but your comments are really very powerful. Notice, a new covenant inaugurated by him. We are not the author nor finisher of our faith. Jesus is. We're simply the benefactors of it. Is that the right word? Benef- beneficiary of it. There you go. Not the better. Beneficiary. Look, look. Here's the people in the land, 19 and 20. Kenite, Kenazite, Cadmonite, Hittite, Perizzite, Rephaim, Amorite, Canaanite, Girgashite, Jebusite, all the ites. You know what Abram got out of this? Listen, a lot of stuff, but here's one. He knew uh, he and his people, people of the covenant, are going to go through hell. He knew it. He knew they're going to be subjugated. They're going to be in bondage. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to die. Many. He knew that. But then he knew, at the end of it all, they're going to gain entrance to a place of promise. Do you know that? Listen, we're going to go through stuff. Christians already are. Christians can get cancer. Christians can have a loved one die prematurely. Christians can lose a job, get in a car accident, have a a house that goes up in flames. Christians can trip and fall. Uh, Christians can break things. (laughs) Christians can lose a spouse, but when it's all done, though there's suffering and dying and death and pain, the Bible says it's momentary light affliction in comparison. What our to what our experience will be when God brings us into our place of promise? It's our heaven. It's our promised land. The paradigm was set here, Abram. Lots of stuff for 400 plus years. But don't worry. Here's how it's going to end. Christians, lots of stuff during your span here on earth. But here's how it's going to end. If you're in, if you're sailing with Jesus, you're going to make it to the other side. That's the promise. That is our hope. Now, I know there are people, and I think well-intentioned, who would like to preach to us and persuade us that if we have faith, we'll be immune from the throes of life. I don't want to question their motive, but I do question their theology. This simply is not borne out by the facts nor by the scriptures. There's just a lot of stuff in life we are not granted immunity from. There's no promise in the Bible uh, that we are going to have a painless, smooth-sailing lifestyle when we accept the Lord Jesus. The promise is we're going to get to the other side. We're going to get just as the Jews were somehow liberated from bondage in Egypt. How did that happen except God did it and brought into a place uh, – Where God made room for them, so too he's going to bring us forth one day and we'll see him forever. And then we'll gather around the throne, we'll worship him. Think about it, tireless, undistracted, selfless worship. We've never experienced that, none of us. One day, we'll be all of us, we won't be looking to the other person. Oh, he's raising his hands. Oh, she's sitting on her hands. We're not going to be doing all that. Hey, that person didn't say hello to me today. Oh, look at that dress. My goodness, it's a little tight. We're, We're not going to... We're not going to be pulling up. We just think that's what have, Heavenly, undistracted, tireless. Oh, I'm falling asleep. Uh, nobody, no way. Unbridled worship in our place of promise. What do we have to go through until then? Only what God thinks we have to go through until then. And then when we go through what, what he thinks we have to go through until then, we get to the then place of promise. Basis of assurance? Look how God has responded to the Jews. May 14th, 1948. They're back in the land. They made it. Not by their own doing. God used a holocaust to motivate the nations of the world to find a place for the Jews. He can use holocausts in our lives too. Somehow, to find an opportunity to bring us home. So anyway, don't despair. The best is yet to come. Okay, so look. We should end early, like eight minutes early. Unbelievable. I guarantee Brother John's just getting warmed up. I'm telling you. He's probably, you know what he's doing? He's talking about dove hunting, stuff like that. Uh, if you want to talk or have any, go ahead, Doc. You go. Wow, holy moly. (laughs) Yeah, just yet. Wow, what a great thing. Man, if I was good at math, I would have gotten that too. (laughs) Uh, That is excellent, Doc. Thank you for sharing that. Hey, God bless you, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. Celebrate it appropriately. Enjoy the freedoms we have. Lord Jesus, talk about freedom. If the sun sets you free, you shall be free. Indeed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for backing up your words through the history of Israel. Thank you for giving us assurance of ultimate salvation no matter what we go through before. Thank you for this historical record which is accurate and true and has tremendous application for us today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming our souls, for preparing a place for us already. Thank you for securing it all by unilaterally passing through the pieces on our behalf. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you next time.